Welcome to Call Jeshurun, a podcast from Congregation B'nai Jeshurun, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshurun is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at tbj.org. I am here with Cantor Emeritus Howard M. Stahl from Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey, who I have had the privilege of knowing for years of my professional life. And you, sir, are a colleague and a mentor and a friend, and I'm really glad to welcome you to our podcast for our discussion today. How are you? Thank you, Matt. I'm 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 good, and it's good to see you and talk to you, and uh, and always catch up. Um, our paths don't often cross, so they go in parallel times at at TBJ and at HUC and all those other initials. But uh, it's great to be able to catch up. Cantor Stahl, um, B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey, where you are Cantor Emeritus is celebrating its 175th year. Um, what are some great, unique, wonderful things you would like people to know about during your tenure as Cantor there? Well, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of exciting things that have gone on in the past, prior to my tenure and during my tenure and currently. Uh, but in 175 years in the arc of a congregation's life, and that's that's rather unusual. Um, you know, the first Reformed congregation was not founded until the 1820s and then the 1830s and 1840s when the second, third, and fourth were founded. Um, always has a glorious history. Sometimes um, one has to look at it from a sociological point of view. So. 175 years ago, a group of Bavarian Jews came to this country um, and decided to settle in Newark. Why did they settle in Newark? Newark is on a river, not the Hudson, but uh, the Passaic River, but that leads to the ocean. And so there was all kinds of manufacturing, whether it was leather, tanning, or the beer industry. Um, there was much to do. And so, of course, in short order, they they decided to get together and form what's called a Kultusgemein, which is really a, a, a religious uh, group uh, for, for prayer, for religious reasons, and for community. And community has been about what TBJ uh, has been about for from the beginning. Um, we're no longer a Bavarian Jewish community. We're very much of a uh, heterogeneous community that has gone far wider than the German experience. But in 175 years, this congregation has gone from a strictly orthodox congregation, practicing a German ritual, um, so much so when Eastern European and Polish Jews and Prussian Jews came here, they decided it wasn't for them, and they decided to leave the congregation and form uh, other congregations, two of which are still extant, one is B'nai Abraham, one is Shalom. They were both uh, part of Jeshurun, 
but their members decided to leave because they didn't like the direction the synagogue was going. Uh, that's not a, a, a new, it's not an old theme, it's a current theme in many congregations. Thank God, not in ours. But um, so we were an Orthodox congregation up until about the 1860s when a man came to this uh, congregation whose name was Joseph Leucht, good German Jewish name. Uh, Joseph Leucht was the cantor of a congregation in, in Baltimore. He had a brother who was a rabbi in, in New Orleans. And Leucht was hired, and I've seen his contract, as cantor, preacher, and teacher. Now, those days, there were not many rabbis in this country, but there were many cantors in this country, which is a whole other topic for discussion. Um, and um, But he kind of morphed into the role of rabbi. So if you read um, the minutes of the congregation, he's referred to by a variety of things, a cantor loiked, a reverend loiked, and rabbi loiked, and then reverend doctor loiked. Uh, I don't believe he had a doctorate, and I don't believe he was ordained as a rabbi, but he became uh, de facto the rabbi of the congregation and was under Leucht where the reforms began to take place. And Leucht was at the congregation from 1868 until he passed away in 1920. He retired in 1901 and successor Solomon Foster took up where Leucht left off. But under Leucht, many changes occurred. So number one, mixed seating, which these days, nobody looks at askance because every reform and pretty much every conservative congregation has that. No longer a mechitza. Um, removing head coverings. And again, you go back to the 1860s, 70s, 80s, this was a traumatic thing after all. How could you remove your head and go to shul with, with, with uh, an uncovered head? Uh, eliminating bar mitzvah. That was eliminated uh, because Leucht felt that what does a 13-year-old know? And why should we give them the credence of, of standing up and teaching us and talking to us? Uh, we'll wait until confirmation. And he introduced confirmation into the congregation, which was done in the eighth grade, uh, and then later in the ninth and tenth grades. Um, and Leucht, under Leucht, we affiliated with the then UAHC, Union of American Hebrew Congregations, founded by Isaac Mayerwise, who coincidentally was the founding rabbi of my first pulpit in Albany, um, which is the fourth oldest congregation, is celebrating its 185th anniversary this year. Wow. As a matter of fact, in two weeks, I'm going to Albany to speak about Wise and the Cantorate. Um, so I, I've had the pleasure of serving two classic reform congregations in my career, uh, one 185 years old, 175 years old. So we're the the uh, younger daughter of the reform movement. Uh, but but Leucht really transformed this congregation. He himself reportedly had a wonderful baritone voice, and it was under Leucht that music became an essential part of this congregation. Um, they installed a pipe organ in the building that he was responsible for constructing uh, or raising the funds, in, uh, which was in 1868. That building was on Washington Avenue. Washington Street in, in Albany, uh, in, in Newark, rather, sorry, that no longer exists. Um, but um, Leucht had a choir, and he himself sang. And it only was an, when he retired that they be hired their first cantor, which was back in 1901 or 1902. 
Um, so under Loic, major changes occurred. And under Foster, uh, Solomon Foster, uh, much more changes occurred in terms of uh, setting Jeshurun aside to be different than Orthodox, so much so that it became almost a radical kind of thing where a person who came into the synagogue who had a head covering was asked to remove it. And um, that it was considered to be disrespectful to had your head covered in the synagogue. Music was uh, glorious, but so much of it was in English, English hymns, uh, the old Union hymnal. Uh, very little Hebrew was done in the service. Although if you look at the curriculum for the religious school, and I've seen uh, high school exams, uh, I'm not sure I could pass those exams, um, <laughs> nor any of our rabbis could pass those exams. Uh, they ask very arcane, intricate questions like, what are the years Ezekiel served as a prophet? Um, those were the days pre-Google, so uh, you had to know that. You Why you had to know that, I don't know. But apparently Foster thought it was imp important. We, we were a, a, a stalwart um, a pillar of the reform movement, and Foster himself was anti-Zionist. And he became president uh, of the organization, the American Council of Judaism, which which was rapidly anti-Zionist. And he, he debated publicly Stephen S. Wise, who was, of course, a very big supporter of Zionism. So that was the stance pretty much until the 18, uh, sorry, the 1940s and 50s when Eli Pilchik came here. And Eli Pilchik was the first Eastern European rabbi to be hired by this congregation. Uh, probably the first rabbi, and maybe the last, <laughs> who spoke Yiddish. So uh, um, he brought a different tone to this congregation. And in, in his very um, gentle but forceful way, he began to turn the congregation uh, into less of an authoritarian, hardline, classical reform congregation into something more accepting. He reinstituted bar mitzvah. Now, that doesn't mean members never had bar mitzvah during Foster's tenure. Uh, they would belong to Jeshurun, but go to Oab Shalom or B'nai Abraham and have a bar mitzvah. So a lot of families, you know, kind of lived in two worlds. But, but Pilchik um, began to move this congregation in a direction. Um, and I'm going to fast forward rather than give you minute details. When I came here in 1999, uh, I had already been in the pulpit 25 years. And it was Barry Green, a blessed memory, who, who knew me. And I had worked with him on national commissions. Um, we didn't always see eye to eye. We didn't agree on, on the role of music, the role of the cantor, the role of worship. Um, in my work as uh, executive vice president and earlier president of the American Conference of Cantors, uh, I was very strong about the, the, the stature of the cantorate and the authority of the cantorate. Um, and, you know, Barry was a Cincinnati trained uh, reform rabbi who didn't always see I to eye with that the 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 role of the cantor um although he he very much appreciated jewish music so um but when cantor summers of blessed memory retired uh and the two of them had been together for 40 years um it was barry green who reached out to me and said why don't you come here and i said to him who are you kidding uh 
you know, we don't agree on a lot of things. And he, he said in his inimitable way, we'll see about that. Um, and I really believe that Rabbi Green wanted change to occur, but he wanted me to be the lever. Uh, Cantor Summers was not going to be able to do that. So I had already um, talked about crossover between the classical approach to Jewish music, you know, organ, professional choir, um, standard repertoire of the 19th and 20th century, with my rock service, which I wrote in 1972, and I had already been, begun working with bands um, in the early 90s, um, if not the late 80s. So I think he looked at me as someone who would be able to make the transition into what was really going on um, in the late 20th century and what inevitably would go on in the 21st century. So um, we began to create um, a model where um, we would kind of expose the congregation to what was being done in most of the reform congregations. And so we, we brought Debbie Friedman, a blessed memory, too many blessed memories, um, that um, she and, and her, her group uh, and I would do something um, six times during the year. And it would be essentially her music or the things that she believed were the future. Uh, and so we did that. And the congregation liked it because Debbie was um, an incredibly talented and, and soulful person uh, who, who deeply believed in what she was doing. And um, she and I had a, a wonderful, close relationship, um, so much so that we made her an honorary member of the American Conference of Cantors. Um, and then after Debbie had done that for a year, we created something called Shabbat Bashir, where once a month, we would kind of open things up. Um, so at that point, we began to make kippot, yarmulkes, available to the congregation. There wasn't a mandate. Uh, you, they were available. So we were sending the message that reform has really always sent about choices. If you want to come with your head covered, come with your head covered. You want to be kosher, be kosher. You want to be Shomer Shabbat, you can still be a reform liberal Jew. So uh, once a month, Shabbat Bashir, uh, I gave the choir and the organist off, and we would, I had a band, pretty talented people, and we would do the service uh, very much like Debbie. Um, and we also told people it would be earlier, so we created a much earlier time for the service so that families might get there. Um, and uh, we said, you know, you don't really have to get dressed, you know, come as you are, you know, we'd love to see you. Because at that point, there was almost a dress code. Women had to wear skirts or dresses, men's suits and ties. We said, you know what, you want to wear a sweater and, and chino pants and women, you want to wear pants, come anywhere you like, we want you there. And we created birthday and anniversary blessings. So that it would be an inducement for people to come and see just how diverse Jewish music can be. As a matter of fact, in 99, before I came to Jeshurun, um, I created a volume uh, called Koleinu uh, B'Yachad, Our Voices Are One, where 20 cantors and Jewish musicians wrote articles on prognosticating what Jewish music would be uh, in the 21st century. And so I edited it with, with the president of the Guild of Temple Musicians, and I wrote an article, and it said, 
we have to cherish the diversity and the eclecticism of Jewish music. It isn't all about one modality. So Louis Lewandowski can live side by side with Jeff Klepper, and Debbie Friedman could live side by side with, you know, Bloch and Binder and the greats of classical 20th, 20th century Jewish music. So, um, and that's where the journey began. And, um, you know, where we are today is, is the logical conclusion of all that journey. It just didn't happen revolutionary, it happened evolutionary, that um, we we have come, come to believe that the main thing is reaching your people, creating a spiritual environment, recognizing inclusivity and diversity, recognizing that the congregation that comes uh, is not monolithic. It's no longer the monolithic congregation of the early German reform 175 years ago. And I realize that is the longest answer to your question. Well, it's a wonderful answer and it really touches upon so many things. I just have a couple quick questions before we, we continue. One is, um, were Talit also not allowed to be worn in those early days? Talit was forbidden. Um, it was not permitted. It was removed unceremoniously um, uh, among the clergy and and the congregants. If you think I happen, sorry, I happen to I happen to be the first clergy to wear to bring back the talit. When I came in '99, I said to Barry Green, "You know, I'm I'm used to not wearing a kippah because I could not wear one of my first and second congregations." But I said, I've always worn a talit. I was the first rabbi or cantor to wear one in Albany, first one in my second congregation on Long Island, and I intend to wear one now. And he said, okay. Now, what they had done before is if you see any of the old photographs, the rabbis and cantors from the time Eli got there had a kind of like a thing attached to their robes, like a neckband, and it had the Hebrew letters for Baruch Atadonai Ohevam O Yisrael, praise you, O God, who loves God's people, Israel. So it was kind of like a faux talit, you know, like it uh, wasn't really, had no fringes. But um, so, and now, of course, we have them available to the congregants, the clergy wear them. Um, and if somebody comes in and wears them, you know, they're more than welcome. But it was, again, a revolutionary, almost a revolutionary thing. Yeah, it's fascinating when you think about, you know, today, um, where talit are in reform prayer experiences compared to what you're talking about in the early days of B'nai Jeshurun. My second um, yeah. question was, you know, you are known to have been uh, magnanimous to Debbie Friedman uh, early on and from the beginning. So your actions speak to your words. Um, I just wanted to know if you could, you know, understanding how Debbie influenced so many people, including myself, if yeah. you could just share a little bit about, you know, sort of the parsonage aspect of it, the human aspect of caring and loving for a person and making a space for them to shine as being part of what a cantor does in the context of your relationship with Debbie. Ideally, anyone who is a religious leader, um, their role, I believe, is to create other leaders. Leaders do not create followers, they create leaders. So in order to do that, you have to be an enabler. And you have to be open 
and secure in yourself to allow others to shine. And I have been accused of being a terrible poker player in my career um, because I cannot hide my face from kvelling. And so, you know, whether it's a, a, a bar about mitzvah child shining up there and I just beam or, you know, any one of my interns or, you know, my colleagues, it just gives me such pleasure and honor. And I, I think it, it it is an obligation we all have to raise up the next generation, um, not to simply sit there and say, well, it's not the same as it was, you know, nobody could do what my generation did. Yeah. And, you know, nobody did what my generation did. But guess what? There's a next generation. And because and you know full well, the student body at Hebrew Union College, there are some brilliant, shining stars with with not only talent, but soul, you know, real deep neshama who, who are going to transform Judaism in ways maybe we can't imagine. So I, I think Unfortunately, Debbie was regarded as a threat early on to some cantors. They looked at her as, who is she? Do you know, she's not a cantor. She's not a, a fully trained uh, a clergy person. And she purports to do it. And that was so cruel and so terrible. And it, it, it spoke to our own insecurities. So I, I thought that we have to find ways to integrate her because Debbie never called herself a cantor. She never wanted that role. She was a spiritual leader in the truest sense who brought um, depth and meaning to people's lives through her soul and through her music. So that is to be cherished. And and um, the more we encourage people to, to do that, uh, the more we guarantee the future of Judaism. I'm grateful that you have illuminated that. It's very important and, and really moving. Um, and I resonate with that. So on a more, um, you know, nostalgic note, when did you decide to become a cantor or did it just choose you and you were already moving into the cantor? Well, um, it has to do with a, a, um, a 1966 Mustang. <laughs> what color blue um so i i i i wanted to be a psychologist and um because but i had i grew up in a, in a reform congregation um that had a very strong youth program and a very strong high school program and you know there were dozens of kids and so i was connected to the synagogue and I, you know, I, I kind of sung, sang in the in the volunteer choir. I, I, I sang in the senior chorale in my high school. Um, I was sort of musical. You know, I would not call myself a sophisticated musician. I didn't grow up in a, in a family where, you know, classical music was important. Um, you know, like everybody else, I listened to, you know, Murray the K on, on, on my transistor radio. But I, I wanted to be a psychologist. So I, but I didn't want to leave home because I had a girlfriend and, you know, she was still in high school and, you know, I was like, you know, talking 17 at this point and she was 15. So um, I applied to NYU and I applied to Queens College, both of which were, you know, really good schools at that time. And I was accepted at both. 
Um, and I also had a region scholarship and a merit scholarship. It must have cost my father $6 to send me to college. Uh, but he said, you know, if you want to go to Queens College, uh, I'll buy you a car because Queens College was a, a city school, even though we lived in Nassau County. It was still cheap, uh, whereas NYU was not. So dumb me, I said, okay. And so my father bought me a 66 Mustang. Um, and I drove every single day on the Long Island Expressway from from Nassau County to Queens, and it would take me two hours. And I hated every minute. I never got the car out of second gear. And I was so furious that after a year, I said, I'm transferring. So I reapplied to NYU. I was going to, they had a University Heights campus, which had a dorm, was still close enough. And I got in. But subsequent, you know, before I had to make the final decision, I had a chat with my rabbi and, he, you know, he knew about this. And he said, why don't you become a cantor? And I said, what? what? Is that a legitimate profession? Because the congregation had a cantor who was a bit of a prima donna and, you know, I had no relationship with him and he had no relationship with any of us, except he sang nicely. And I said... I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, I can sing and I love music, but it's, I'm not passionate. I'm more passionate about Judaism and the Jewish people and helping people. He said, you could do that and combine your love for people, your interest in helping people and Jewish life by being a cantor. I said, I don't understand that. He said, I'm taking you. He took me by the hand to 40 West 68th Street, where the college was, introduced me to Morris Barish, who was one of the premier composers of the 20th century um, and, and and introduced me to the dean. And I applied and thought I would never get in. I mean, what I sang for my audition, I mean, the current student body would laugh if I ever told them. So I said, I'll never get in. Meantime, I got in. And, and, and so... Because of a 66 Mustang, I look back on a 50-year career and say, maybe somebody else knew something that I didn't know. It was divine intervention. I, with the Long, Long Island Expressway traffic did it. We all get by with a little help from our friends and a rabbi and, and mentors. Where yes, in Long Island were you living? East Meadow. Okay, great, great. And, and what was the rabbi's name who gave you that advice? Louis Satlow. Fantastic. Once you got into the college and started learning, um, can you identify someone who was, you know, a really positive, helpful mentor to you? It could be someone who helped you musically with your voice. It could be someone who helped you intellectually, spiritually. Can you recall yeah. a mentor for us, please? Well, I would say there were three um, and three very different people who, who impacted my career. Having grown up in a reform synagogue, I really didn't know much about Chazanut um, or Nusach. Um, you know, I knew about some of the big compositions that were, were, were sung in the reform movement. Um, so um, our paradigm was Temple Emanuel in New York. That that was the, the sine qua non. If you could ever think of becoming the cantor of Temple Emmanuel, it's like you became, you know, with the King of England, you know, or or the President of the United States, or you know, whatever, or the Rabono Shalom. 
the cantor of Temple Emmanuel was Arthur Wolfson, a blessed memory, who was a very extraordinary, talented, fine pianist and musician and a, and a, a wonderful singer and, and a mensch, um, had great dignity and, and, and also he was kind. Um, and he taught us um, basic repertoire of reform movement. Those days they were you reform repertoire and then the traditional repertoire. And and Wolfson um, was also chairman of the faculty and he was very nurturing and very kind. And, you know, I, I never saw the man without a three-piece suit and looking like he was ready to perform a funeral at the drop of a hat. He was always, there was a certain amount of image that Emmanuel's clergy's always projected in those days. And if you go to a service, you know, He'd be singing this glorious music with an 18 voice choir and a pipe organ. So that was like, if we ever could be that way. The other mentor was was on the opposite side of the fence, Lawrence Avery of blessed memory. Um, and he was the cantor of Congregation Bethel in New Rochelle. Um, his, um, he was a well-trained Juilliard musician who grew up son of an Orthodox cantor, um, who was a phenomenal musician and, and singer and arranger and just had a great gift. And he was, a, he, he talk, talk about leading song. He never played the guitar, but he would lead singing with his kids standing at a piano playing and, and just, you know, his whole sense of verve and energy and enthusiasm. And he was a little short guy, uh, but with a phenomenal talent and a phenomenal sensitivity. And I coached with him for years. Um, and my early recordings, I even sound like him a little bit. Um, so he, he really opened my eyes to the traditional repertoire. He really taught me trope, cantillation. He taught me um, Shabbos Nusach uh, in a way that I could respect as a musician and as a cantor. And, and there were others, but the third one would be Fred Pickett. Um, who was professor of composition, uh, who I've talked about, you know, publicly, you know, the stern uh, Austrian, you know, gentleman who just said what was on his mind and would take students' compositions and throw them in the garbage. And who you'd say, Mr. Pickett, it's based on Nusach. He would say, I'm allergic to Nusach. And he'd rip it up and throw it out. And then, you know, he, he somehow took a liking to me and I had my my fill of trying to compose things, two-part inventions and counterpoint things, it was okay. And then when I submitted my rock service, I expected him to rip it up and throw it out. And he said, you know, there was something there and he published it. And I later became his editor uh, when he started New Horizons publication and did all his own music. I edited all his Hebrew for him. So he was a great mentor and it shows you that you can't judge literally a book by its cover, because if you met him, you'd say this is austere and Tao, and he really was a very kind and nurturing person, at least to me. So, I mean, there, there are many more, but those I would say from HUC were the three three big ones. That's wonderful, really wonderful. Um, two quick follow-up questions. Uh, regarding uh, Chazanut and Nusach, could you just talk about the importance of improvisation and how you understand the liturgical inspiration and then are able as a cantor to improvise musically within our tradition as, as you understand it. 
well, it, it, improvisation is an art, whether it's hazanut or or jazz or rock or what or you know pop. I, I mean, to be able to take the the core, the basis of what the composer wrote, and then just make it live in how you interpret, how you feel. A lot of our students can't do that because we teach them nusach basically by what. Uh, Cantor Alter wrote and Cantor Kachko wrote. And so everybody knows the Nusach and can sing a Hatima or sing a liturgical piece according to the notes, but a true cantorial artist is going to take the Nusach and, and let it live and expand according to how they feel. So it, it should never be the same twice. It is based on fundamental core so that you know that on Rosh Hashanah, you're going to hear that that cadence and on, on Shlosh Regalim hear that cadence and on Shabbos hear that cadence. And it's going to be in the right mode. You know, you're not going to sing uh, out of the wrong mode, but there should be room for flexibility and, 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 and let it live according to how you believe and how you feel at the moment. And I think that's a lost art. And I think that's a that's a, something that needs to be worked on. And the students express that as well, that they're just not comfortable. And a, part of it is trust and part of it's because it's a foreign environment. I mean, when you sing opera, you're not really improvising, uh, although you can, you know, you can interpolate high notes. But those are pretty much standard things. Um, you know, and a lot of them are not schooled in jazz. Uh, uh, you know, they're basically... It's on the paper. I'll sing what's on the paper. You know, I'll follow the composer's um, instructions. So I think true chazanut, if you listen to the really great cantors of the 20th century, um, traditional cantors, you're going to hear really that they're they're taking this and, and making it come alive as opposed to just boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think that... Um you know, trends cycle. And I think we will have a reintroduction to an improvisatory stage. It might come through someone who's very gifted, who decides they just want to experiment again and rediscover it and then show it again. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Um, another question was about the um, Rock Shabbat. So, yeah. you know, you originally um, composed and published it 50 years ago, more or less. Yeah. And, and recently um, presented it. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a part of it. And yes, sir, you were. I wanted to ask you how you felt about, you know, just sort of the macro cycle of having composed it and um, having then represented it 50 years later and what, what that was like for you. When, when I wrote it in, in, in the early 70s, it was my attempt to integrate tradition and, 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 and innovation. So it's based on traditional cantillations, but it has a life based on a contemporary modality. I wrote it in addition to an academic exercise, but I really wrote it to be used as a way to bring in more people to the synagogue who might relate to this kind of rhythm and, and dynamics and tempi and, and instrumentation, that it wasn't business as usual. Because in those days, we had a dichotomy. There was so-called camp music and so-called synagogue music, and never the twain shall meet. So what went on in the Jewish camps, whether it was uh, Eisner or Warwick or Kahnemore or Harlem, 
was very much what Debbie Friedman and Jeff Klepper were doing and, and many others. Uh, but that never was done in the synagogue. The synagogue was business as usual, organ, choir, cantor, don't sing along, just listen. So I said, we've got to bring some of that into the synagogue. And so that service was done many times over the years. It had a you know, big run in the early 70s. Um, and I would trot it out every like decade or so. You know, we did it once before at Jeshurun. Um, and what, what astounds me is it still has a life. It still it still has validity. Um, and um, it's not that it's such a great piece of music, but it's an engagement tool. And any legitimate engagement tool we can do to open people's eyes to the beauty of what Jewish life and Jewish music has to offer is valid in my mind. And so there was such joy by all those who performed and such joy by those who were part of the congregation. And again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the shoulder, but we need to do more of this kind of stuff. It's in my mind, it's valid because it is rooted in authenticity of liturgy, authenticity of of nusach or, or cantillation, and it speaks to the time today. So I would be thinking that what else could we do? You know, I don't know. I have no problem with pop music and rap music and and contemporary music, but it just can't be that alone. It has to have some connection and and a connection to text. So one of the things that drives me crazy, and I myself have been guilty of this, is singing things that have no connection to text. You know, that you're just singing a tune. Now, I love singing tunes, but we're not singing tunes in services. We should be singing prayer and creating spiritual and, and, and engagement. And so if you sing about tranquility and calm and peace and lying down to to you know at night and waking up to God's light, the text has to sort of reflect that. It can't be bum 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 da da dum bum 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 da da dum bum bum how how is that reflect calm and peace and tranquility? So I I think it's it's not only just about melody and rhythm and tempi, it's about um authenticity and it's about um a sense of of connection to our past and our history um, and, and to our roots. That's wonderful. You're, um, you're known as someone who has a great understanding of Hebrew and um, you're known as someone who um, understands the nuances of the language extremely well. And, you know, that's such an important part of where we're going so that we can have, you know, relevant music. The Rock Shabbat is modern. And you're somewhat of a modernist rooted in tradition. Yeah. So you sit sort of at this wonderful fulcrum um, as cantor emeritus and also as an advisor at the and faculty at the Hebrew Union College. So, you know, my question is, what are we doing now to, um, you know, bring out this fertility of these things that you've, you know, just spoken of so well, to be modern, yet rooted in tradition, understanding that the Hebrew Union College and the Reform Movement, you know, doesn't move as fast as our conversation. Um, but, you know, we would like to lean on you to sort of envision um, where this baton is going uh, with the students. We've touched upon improvisation and chazanut, 
and we touched upon this idea of using modern uh, music and rhythm from a myriad of places as long as it's relevant with the text. Would you like to add anything else to this sort of um, theme that we're on? Well, I, I think <clears throat> it's a it's a bigger question that where are we going in terms of um, of the American synagogue? Uh, where are we going in terms of the contemporary progressive American Western synagogue? I mean, I'll broaden it. And what are the clergy going to look like going forward? The clergy today or the student body of the rabbi, rabbinic and cantorial school looks much different than when I was there. When I was there, it was very much of a mechitza, a separation. So one side of the hall, you had the rabbis, and the other side, you had the cantors. And the cantors basically were concerned with artistry and vocal prowess. You know, they wanted to be religious leaders, but they knew that 90% of what they were going to do is, is vocal. In those days, the cantors who got the finest positions are the ones who had the finest voices. And conversely, or similarly rather, the rabbis who got the best positions were the ones who were the most scholarly or could, who could speak and create sermons that were masterful. That's not the case today. The most frequently asked question that search committees ask rabbinic and cantoral candidates is, are you a people person? Now, no one ever asked my generation, rabbinic or cantorial, if they were people persons. That was not the role. Today, it is really a totally different role. And you see a fluidity of roles. So if you go to tefillah, to, to services at HUC, it's very common to have a rabbinic student playing the guitar and leading, leading the song, and, and the cantorial student giving a Devar Torah or the sermon of the day. So in the early days, it was clear a cantor sang and the rabbi talked. That was it. Today, there's there's a fluidity um, that never existed um, in, in 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 the early days of the uh, of the late days of the 20th century. So we are de-emphasizing the performative nature of the cantorin. No one ever cares if a cantor can sing an aria, an operatic aria, or can sing an oratorio today. You had to in my day. You had to sing art songs. You had to sing Brahms and Schubert and Schumann. And today, it's not the case because that kind of music is not really desired in the synagogue, perhaps for the high holy days. But the rest of the year, we want basically participatory music that kind of brings people in rather than pushes out. I mean, people love to go to the opera and they don't sing along, but when they come to synagogue now, they want to feel participatory. So we're not training the cantors to be vocal artists practically. They have to do that in their education, but when they get out in the pulpit, that's not the case. Similarly, congregations don't want rabbis to preach 45-minute scholarly sermons anymore. They want them to talk about how they can cope with life, how they could cope with a challenged world. So it is a completely different modality. And in many cases, it's hard to tell the rabbinic students from the cantorial students, which I think down the line, what will happen is what I've wanted to happen for decades is that you will just ordain everybody as a rabbi. And those who have musical ability or interest and want to be functioning as a chazan or cantor will take additional courses, you know, and they and they will learn the cantorial arts as necessary 
to function in that capacity. So you'll have, you know, a cross ordination that people can function in that way. And then smaller congregations certainly are seeing that now. There are smaller congregations that even have one spiritual leader, sometimes a cantor, sometimes a rabbi. So I think the whole future is is um, is is something that's uh, debated now um, at Hebrewian College, at Jewish Theological Seminary, certainly among the URJ. Uh, where are we going as a synagogue? Thank God, Beth 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 Emmeth and Albany, my first congregation, uh, and and B'nai Jeshurun, uh, my current congregation, are strong and vital. Um, it has a, a base of strength, but not only based on history, but based on current leadership that are constantly reinvigorating it. So I'm not worried about those congregations. I am worried about a lot of other congregations. You hear congregations clo closing and merging and congregations that have six people attending services and 30 people, you know, who maybe showed up for Rosh Hashanah. So I, I think, you know, looking at the Pew study, um, we need to think very carefully what the next generation of Jews are going to look like. It's a great answer and a challenging one. Um, I'm just going to throw you a curveball, and if you're not prepared, you don't have to answer it. It's fine. Um, could you tell us, um, you know, two to four pieces of music, cantorial music, that you really care about, are moved by, and and uh, want people to know about, and maybe why? Uh, sure. I mean, um, are you talking about things I've sung or things that I've heard or all of the above? I mean, anything that would be sung in, in the synagogue um, by a cantor that is either not in rotation right now or something you did, just something that's, you know, speaks to this artistic text possibility, this ideal of and then yeah. the piece itself, the composition is that good. I think it, it comes down to an individual's ability to interpret the composer's music if it is consonant with the text. So, you know, you can write a piece of music and not understand the text and fake it, but there, there are many compositions, particularly for the High Holy Days, that I believed really interpreted that text in a way that's extraordinary. I mean, there are two settings of Unatana Tokef um, that I did over the years that um, I thought were brilliantly uh, written uh, and and incredibly moving. Um, and if if the singer or the musician or the artist can't be moved, well, how can you move your your audience or your congregation? So what, one of them is by Morris Barish, who I referenced, who was kind of the factotum at, at HUC when I was there, but a brilliant composer. Um, he wrote an Unatana Tokef. Uh, and then Max Janowski, um, whose music is probably better known, wrote one as well. Um, and... I would say um, Max's Shema Koleno, uh, which we still do, um, also brilliantly interprets the text in, in, in a very moving, melodic, you know, interesting way. Um, but then again, you know, I, I happen to think Leon shares uh, Heal Us Now 
is is just it it's not a profound piece of music in 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 terms of the compositional style but he really captures the spirit of creating a healing prayer um and i can't help but be moved when i sing it um and so in me it touches my soul more than it touch than debbie friedman's and of course debbie friedman's Mishaberach is, is is a classic piece now, but for me, as as the, as the artist, as the cantor, you know, it, it it doesn't move me when I sing it as much as when I sing Leon Schur's. Not to denigrate Debbie's piece at all, uh, but I could never sing it like Debbie sang it. When Debbie sang it, hmm. so, so. But I, I I'm trying to to convey that it's not necessarily oh all this old stuff is great. Uh, and there were so many Yiddish pieces that I sang over the years that you know just also captured, you know, the 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 the, the pathos and the and the, and the, and the suffering and the and the struggle of Jewish life that you couldn't help but feel. I'm giving it life because I'm here and I have to speak for those who are not here. So again, it's not only the old; it's also the new. And there's so many you know beautiful compositions. I. A couple of years ago, I, I was one of the, the editors or the readers um, on a panel to uh, when um, music was submitted for a High Holy Day volume that Transcontinental uh, published. And there were some incredibly beautiful pieces in that. There are two settings of Shema Kolenu that uh, are contemporary that I think interpret the text beautifully. So I, I'm not a Luddite, totally locked in the past. I'm open, but there's a lot of stuff, old and new, that to me doesn't interpret the text. And it's just, you know, Gebrauch's music. It just, you know, oh, it's a nice piece of music. But but every every cantor will tell you something different, something that moves them. Beautifully said. Well, Cantor Emeritus Stahl, I really value your time. This has been truly delightful to speak with you. Um, let's do this again sometime. My pleasure. And thank you, Matt. You, uh, you are very patient and let me rab rattle on. I really enjoy listening to you and learning from you, and people will also enjoy hearing this podcast. Thank you, Matt. Take care. Thank you for listening to this edition of Call Jeshurun. If you would like to learn more, visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement. We really hope to see you soon.